0: So good to see you this morning. For those of you who are dads, happy Father's Day. For those of you who will be dads one day, happy future Father's Day. Amen. This morning, as you already know from, this is the 67th lesson in our skirting through Matthew. And, you know, we laugh and chuckle at that, but I really, it is kind of a real skirting through Matthew to kind of skim the surface. But we're continuing in Matthew and we're in chapter 22, which is the last chapter that Matthew records that Jesus is being questioned and Jesus is being, if you would, verbally attacked by the leadership of Israel. The attack is going to be different the next time. But the attack up to this point has been the questioning of his authority. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Where did this authority come from? Why are you doing what you're doing? We're in charge. We're the priests. We're the elders. We're the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We're the ones whom God has given oversight and leadership for his people. And there was certainly an expectation and even a desire for the Messiah. But that expectation and desire for the Messiah was a political expectation, and understandably so. They were looking for someone to come whom Moses promised. You remember, in Deuteronomy, you may remember that. Deuteronomy 18.15, I think it is. And Moses said... A prophet is coming like unto me. Listen to him. And so there was this promise from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, moving all the way through of Israel's history, that a deliverer is coming. And they obviously and understandably saw this deliverer as we would, as one who would throw off the yoke of oppression of Rome and reestablish Israel's independence as a nation. And that they would once again enjoy the kind of status and supremacy that they enjoyed, for instance, under Kings David and Solomon. And certainly Jesus is that deliverer. He is that Messiah. And he is one who is coming to deliver us from bondage. And from the wicked rule of Satan. But there is a way that that deliverance must be carried out in order for that deliverance to be effective. And that deliverance must be carried out, not in a political or natural sense. But it must be carried out through the breaking of the power of the one who rules over us. And that is the power of death as a result of sin. And so he first must deal with the root in order then to begin to produce the effect of the fruit of deliverance. And so the root of deliverance is the dealing with and putting to death death. And death is put to death. Death's hold and activity and sway and command and inevitability, at least spiritually speaking, over God's people is put to death at the cross. Why? Because death rules and reigns throughout humanity, and you see this in Romans 5, because of sin in humanity. And so Jesus putting sin to death by paying the full, final, and forever price of our sin the guilt of our sin once that occurs it is finished in john 19 verse 30 death then jesus then is swallowed up in death and in being submitting himself to the gripping of death into the grave jesus in the resurrection leaves death in the grave so that in the resurrection death is finally forever buried amen And then in that, he is able to deliver us. But the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel, and quite frankly, even the disciples, they didn't see this. And we would not have seen it either. Because you see, it's spiritually appraised. And so there is this contest. Who are you? What's your authority? And hopefully I can begin to get to the lesson today. And so last week, you remember, we've dealt with these questions, and this is the last of the questions that um, are given by the Pharisees. The next question after today's question will be the question of Jesus, which will finally close out chapter 22. And then we'll get into chapters 23, 4, and 5, which is the last of the great discourse or the sermons, the fifth of the great sermons. And then after that, we'll get into the trials of Jesus. I did say the trials because there are six trials of Jesus, and we'll talk about all six of them, although most believers don't see that there are six. So verses 34 to 40 in Matthew 22, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, remember about the resurrection, remember that? God is the God of the... Living, not of the dead. When he had silenced the Sadducees, don't you love it when truth silences the lie? They gathered together. Now's our chance. Let's try to go in one more time. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now, that word test is to trick him up, to catch him in a fault or a failure. Uh, <clears throat> teacher, <clears throat> Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great commandment and first commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now immediately, did you notice something? They didn't ask him what two commandments, did they? They said, which commandment? And there was a debate, an ongoing debate among the leadership, among the theologians of the day. Is there a command that summarizes God's intent and purpose and God's revelation in the law? Is there any commandment that we can say, this is the one that summarizes and that God is showing forth the essence of his purpose in creating us, this is the commandment that summarizes that will of God. So they ask for that commandment. It's not a bad request. I think it's a great request. But Jesus is giving two commandments in answer to the question, which commandment? And so what does Jesus do? He answers them by giving them two commandments. Scriptural references. Notice, please, again, let us be this kind of people. Jesus always answers the questions and or the objections of either the people in the church, if you would, or outside of the church, he never gives a natural explanation or opinion. He always gives the word of God. Amen? And so can we be a people who, when the world begins to question us, attack us, Pin us down. Let us give the power of the word of God as our answer and leave our own opinions outside. Amen? Amen? Because it's the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, which is what? Active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So he gives two commandments. Deuteronomy five, You shall love the Lord your God. And then he gives another commandment. What is it? Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love one another. On these two commandments rests all the law and the prophets. You shall love God and you shall love one another. And so by connecting the great Shema, sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 5 is part of the great Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear Shema, O Israel. O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God. Yahweh alone is God. Remember that? That is a verse that you and I should know. Deuteronomy 6 4 should be our Shema as believers. And so by giving Deuteronomy 6 5, Jesus is explicating or explaining how the great Shema, how this great devotion to God as our God alone is to be worked out or to be manifested. Deuteronomy 6.5 and equally equals Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Leviticus 6.18, which equals Deuteronomy 6, five, which equals Leviticus 18, etc., etc., etc. And so by connecting these with the Shema, what Jesus is really doing at least as I can see the word, and hopefully the Holy Spirit has shown me clearly, he's really explicating Genesis 126. You see, it's easy for us to forget the connectability and the comprehensive cohesion of the word of God. Jesus is not not teaching or doing anything anything at all whatsoever that is not underpinned by and as is the result of Genesis 126 to 28 are we getting this amen are we getting this so he's really David he's really just he's explicating Genesis 126 if you would you see, in order to be God's image-bearer, in order that God be Deuteronomy 6.4 in us, hear, O oh people of God, Yahweh, Yahweh alone is our God. And in order to, for that to be image, we must be a people of Deuteronomy 6.5, which is our upward toward God, revelation, and Leviticus 19.18, which is our lateral or what? Outward revelation of what that upward revelation is to be looking like and how it is to be manifested in us. To say we love God is to love his people. To say we love his people is to love God. Oh, we see this. Do we see this? And so, Deuteronomy 6.5 is the upward expression of Israel's devotion to Yahweh. You know what I mean by upward, toward God, is the vertical revelation. And Leviticus 19.18 is the outward or lateral toward the other people expression of their devotion to Yahweh. And this is the heart of what it means to image God. This is the heart of what it means to image God. By joining these two passages, Jesus is declaring that in order... To love God. In order to love God. We must love the people whom God loves. And as we love the people whom God loves. We are loving God. Do we get it? So the way we think about. The way we relate to. The way we, in any way, devotion to one another. However we handle one another. However we do it. For whatever reason. We are saying this is God's kind of love. Now you need to stop a second. And you don't have to raise your hand. In fact, don't raise your hand. But how many of us may have ought against another believer and are having a real struggle to forgive or to relate to, or I forgive but I don't want anything to do anymore, and reject, and to be angry with, and to be jealous of, and to be impatient with. When we do that to one another, we are saying that this is God's kind of love and this is the huge danger of the way we live among ourselves and we need to take it deadly seriously why because it cost Jesus the very life his very life to display this in us now, what kind of love are we to love God with what kind of love to love one another? His unique kind of love. You remember, I, I spent a little time with this in, in a class several weeks ago. And as I went through this and I felt the Lord come, bring him back, I thought, well, Lord, you, we've already done this. And, and it was just, nope, do it again. And again. And I am convinced That we as human beings, you see, that's our problem. We're human beings. You know, the moment I saw Tammy May, I knew what your problem was. It's all over your face. You're a human being. You see, Carrie, your problem is you're a human being. And not only that, it's accentuated because you live with a human being. But that's a real problem. And I love saying it, and we do laugh, but what? It is the central problem that we have. We are human beings. And because we're human beings, we love with human kind of love. And we believe that once we're saved, what God is doing is bolstering Improving. Enlarging. Our. Kind of love. And he isn't. Brother you need to love God more. You need to. And you've heard these sermons haven't we? What we need to do. And it's all. All anti God. God. can't love my wife in the right way, no matter what I do or try to do. I cannot do it. The cross proves that. God's kind of love is utterly, absolutely, forever, an absolute kadesh, unique, holy kind of love. And this is the love, this love. Specific, only in God, only God's kind of love is the love with which we are to love God and to love one another. This is the love of God, the love of God. Of is a preposition. The love as pertaining to and connected with and is God Himself. So it's not an improvement on ours. It's not a whitewashing or just changing some of the activity of my love and kind of changing it into a better kind of love. What does this love look like? First John four 19 nineteen. I'm sorry nine through eleven. I have nineteen through eleven in my notes. I don't know what you have in yours. Whoever wrote these didn't know what he was doing. And this is love. This is what love is. Listen, John. Four, first John four nine through eleven. You want to know what love is. You want to know what biblical love is. You want to know the context and the outworking of biblical love of God's kind of love. Listen to this. First John four what nine through eleven. This is love, and this not that we first love God. You see, there's a teaching out there that you're saved. If you first love God, and if you first love him and seek him, then God will love you. That's not what the Bible says, does it? This is the love of God. Not that you first loved him or sought for him. It just says not, and yet preachers all the time say it is. Okay, you just have to make a decision. Who knows? Who knows? I... And I'm sure most of you, or hopefully all of you, I stand with what the word says. This is God's love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us. And how did he do it? What does that essence of love look like? He sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrificial death for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Did you just see Deuteronomy 6, 5? In Leviticus 18, 19, 18. And did you just see it? God first loved us. God's love. God, 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 God. And then us, 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 us. The two being united in his love and by his love. That clock has got to be shot and hanged. Why? Why is this so? Let me say this, don't answer, just think, is it biblically accurate if I were to say God has love? Don't say anything, just think. God has love. It's biblically inaccurate to say that, it's wrong. See, God doesn't have anything. He doesn't have power. He doesn't have peace. He doesn't have joy. These are not things he has. This is who he is. This is why he says in Exodus, speaking to Moses from the bush in Exodus chapter 3-14, Moses says, what's your name? Explain your nature. Who are you in yourself, in your essential person? Who are you? And he says, I am. He didn't say, I got this and I got that and I got the other. He didn't say, I have anything. He says, what, Frank? I am. So we're not talking about properties that God has. We are talking about properties that define the essential person of God himself. So what does 1 John 4, 8 say? God is love. So. We're not saying something that God has as attributed to him or external to him or not as a part of him or however. We're talking about the very essence of the nature of God. God is love. This is who he is. Love is God in that context. They cannot be separated for at any moment If God ceases to express and be love, he ceases to be who he is. Because he is the immutable, eternal, unchangeable, everlasting God of glory. Amen? So, why does he love us? Why does 1 John 4, 9 through 11... Not that you first loved God, but that he first loved you and gave his son to be the propitiation, the sacrificial death for his sin, for your sin. Why does he say that? Because John has already told you. God is love. God doesn't have power. God is power. God doesn't have joy. God is joy. God is peace. God is righteous. Too often Christians begin to think of God in human terms too much. So something, love is not something that God does. It's who he is, therefore who he is produces the doings. Who he is, why do you breathe? Because you're alive. Because you're alive, you breathe. Now some of you may be questioning that at the moment, but whatever. Whatever. You see, love is who God is. Love is the very essence of God's nature. It is the very thing that activity, grace, quality, property (coughs) that defines and makes God, God. Therefore, you see, as God's image bearers, those who are the visible display of the very person and character of God, must be those who are displaying this essential quality of God. God is love. And this works out in devotion to God and in devotion to who else? One another. Listen to this. John 4, 11 to 12. I should have put 1 John. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If we love one another, with what? God's love. If we love one another, what kind of love, Darlene? God's love. If God's love is operative in us, that's what he's saying. Not just, oh, I just love you, therefore I know I'm of God. There are many people, even in the church, who would say... This person in the world right here is the most sacrificial giving person that I have ever known. That person must know God because I see this love for humanity and helping and giving. Now, we're thankful for that. But if it's not God's kind of love in that person... It doesn't display God. It's not of God. It's of human love. As high as human love can be, it misses by infinity God's kind of love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Again, what kind of love? God's kind of love if we love one another with God's kind of love that shows that God abides in us And his love is being perfected in us or being matured in us It should be obvious that this kind of love is not indigenous to us as human beings You see this is the very love that is displayed in the trinity Among the three persons of God you want to know what love is? Love is the fellowship and relationship through distinctive roles of each of the persons of God. That's what love is. There's your definition. There's the reality. And listen what Jesus said in John 5, 42. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And so that love of God, which is indigenous and intrinsic to him, which is himself, his very nature, must be set or placed within us if we are to be people of God's love. It is not something that we can get or grasp. It is something that must be given. And even If I can in some way move and ask God for the gift of this love, God, would you give me the gift of your love? You see, that's a request that cannot be genuinely made by any person because if I'm saying it in the natural, I'm saying it for my benefit, I'm not saying it for God's benefit. And so you cannot seek God on your own because you ain't got the love for it. It must be set within you from outside of you by the God who is love to be placed in us so that we become the people of God's kind of love. And so the Bible says, Jesus says, that's why, you did not choose me, but I what? Chose you, and I have ordained that you should bear fruit. I have put my love in you, my peace. Remember this? My peace, my joy I give to you. Do you remember that? My, 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 I give to you so that now you have it with me. And it's now in you because I've given who I am into you. This love is given to us by the Holy Spirit. What is the nature of God's kind of love? I suppose there's so much more to say, but at least I can say this. God's love is the expression of his intrinsic selflessness. You know what I mean by that? His intrinsic to his nature selflessness God's love is absolutely other-oriented, looking for the benefit and welfare of another, outward-going. God's love is a self-sacrificing. It is a self-giving love. And there's nothing like it in humanity. You get a couple of little glimpses of it, obviously, in the way some people love one another. But it is not to be misunderstood as a revelation of God's kind of love. And so this is the love that you see expressed in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world selfishly, other-orientedly, givingly, That what did he do? He sent his only son. And in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through the son might be saved and brought into the love of God by the love of God. See, this is why God created us. This is what we see the most monumental, startling, majestic, awestruck verse in the Bible about God's love is what verse? Genesis 1 1. Genesis 1 1. For in that verse, God decrees and decides. To create humanity as the living display of this selfless, self-giving, self-serving love that is within himself, about himself, among the three persons of the Trinity. He will create humanity to demonstrate what that love of God really looks like in a people. So that he can share himself with a people of his love whom he calls my image bearers. Knowing all the while that when Genesis 1-1 hits the page, if you would, Golgotha is the price. Someone said, well, if Jesus had not died. Well, if Jesus had not died, you wouldn't have Genesis 1.1. Don't even say that. It doesn't make sense. Amen. Amen. It doesn't make sense. The moment God committed himself, let Everything was committed, not because God was required by anything external to himself, but was required within the context of his own loving will to do it. So he committed himself by the commitment of his own love within the community of the Trinity to create at the highest price the cross so that we could experience the highest gift, the gift the livingness, the experience, the expression of that love in us. Amen? It's not this foolishness that you see on TV or whatever when these preachers say, God wants us to be happy and God wants this and God wants that. It's bad doctrine. At least it's bad doctrine and probably it's heretical. It's anti-God to teaching. You see, because everything about our life, everything... It's God oriented. It's for God. It's from God. It's about God. And He has made us the means by which He Himself is displayed as glorious. Amen. Genesis 1 1. It just every time I read it, and I sit. And I just let God speak to me about the unfathomable riches of that verse. It is incredible that when there was nothing, God created everything at the highest price to Him to give us the highest gift. It's an incredible verse. Remember, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And they were created in order to display God's kind of love in a community. Because there is no such thing as God's love in one person. God's love is the reality of what love is and must always be set within the context of plurality, because it displays and it defines the very person of God in the relational community of the three persons of God. That's why Allah cannot be God, because he's a single person being, and a single person being cannot be this kind of love. It can't happen. Because love has to, by its very definition, because of who God is, love must have a community of at least two or more, and of course, in God, three, in order to be God's love. Amen? So they were created, Adam and Eve. This means that they were to love God by relating to one another. Hear me. This means that they were to love God. Listen to me. This means that they are to love God and that their love of God and for God is manifested as they relate to one another in God's love, you do see that there is no disconnection between Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 18, I'm sorry, 19, 18. There is no disconnection. If there is any disconnection whatsoever, then neither side is correct. And the church, we need to get this strongly. This is the fundamental reason for any relational discord and disruption among the believers in the church and in marriages. This is the issue. Because God's love is not being manifested and cooperated with and active in any particular circumstance or area. There's something about human love that has crept in and has preempted God's kind of love. I don't care what the reason is. Why? It doesn't matter. Because God loved us with a love and we gave him more reason not to do that than any of us can give to one another. And I have seen the transforming power of God's love in this church, especially in marriages where the most hideous and horrible things have happened. And a decision had to be made. Am I giving in and walking this in my kind of love For something about me and for me and how I've been affected and what's happened to me and whatever. Or will I allow the sacrificing death of Jesus Christ to be applied to my kind of love, my self-love, in preference for the resurrecting of God's kind of love in me within this relationship? Amen? You see, that's the essence of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with relational difficulties, isn't it? The essence isn't about me. The essence isn't about what he said or what she did or where, whatever. The essence is about God. Oh, church, that we could get this deeper every day. It's about God. You see, Adam and Eve were to live other oriented. Why? Because they were imaging God's other-oriented love. Adam and Eve were to be manifesting or imaging God's self-giving love. Why? Because they were to be imaging God's kind of self-giving love, sacrificial love. Why? Because God's love is self-sacrificing. That's why. Listen, this is why you were saved. If you don't like it, tell Jesus to take a hike. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Well, then let's stop allowing Satan to still have issue in our lives in particular categories. Amen? This is why you were saved. To be this way. This is why the Bible says you're going to suffer. Suffering in the flesh this way is the worst kind of suffering. Amen? This is the worst kind of suffering. Suffering. Suffering where your natural person, your flesh, whatever, is dying to get back and to rebel and to hate and to resist and whatever. That's the suffering that is the most unique and the deepest suffering in a believer. This is the suffering. Not because you don't have enough money or whatever. Nothing. There's no suffering that we have. It is as deep as relational suffering. Amen? Amen. Can you say amen? amen? Yes. That's the deepest. And so you see, the enemy came in and he successfully tempts Adam and Eve to grasp at something. You can be like God. You can have something for yourself. It can be about you, Celeste. You can be somebody. Jim, they'll think better of you. If you look a certain way, if you act, if you go. And so they were tempted to grasp at Godness. You see that? And the moment she grasped, what happened? Verse 6 of Genesis 3 says what? And she, do you see where, am I right? Is it verse 6? And she saw? Or did I miss a verse? Yeah, verse 6. And she saw what? She saw something for herself. Murph, she saw something for herself. Oh, this tree, look at all that. And she grasped for it. She took, she took. It says she saw and she took, right? Didn't, does it say that? You see that? And she grasped. And once she grasped, she forfeited or put down or rejected God's self-giving love for a self-grasping love. Do you see that? Now, what does that remind you of grasping? Somebody said about somebody somewhere that he did not grasp at Divinity. Philippians chapter 2 said Jesus did not grasp, but Eve did. And ever since Eve, every person born upon this earth is a grasper. And God says, stop grasping. And how do we stop it? By his love coming into us and beginning to break the graspiness of our selfishness. Amen. The grasping of our selfishness. The grasping of our selfishness. Why? Because Jesus came and he did not grasp. And by not grasping as a human being, he undid what Adam and Eve did. Can you say amen? You're not amen mean. You're amening the truth of God's word. Somebody said, why do you want them to amen? I want us to always declare the amen to God's word. You see, so her love was turned from a thee love to a me love. Me replaced thee. This means that every human relationship today is now underpin, totally saturated with a self-getting, self-grasping love that always and only to some way seek its benefit, not God's. Even though it may not be obvious to us, it is very obvious to God. We may not see it, but it's obvious to God. Quickly, let me do it this way. In Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh has brought Israel to Mount Horeb to give them the Constitution, the law. In Exodus 20, 2 through 17 is the law. And I want us to hopefully see something here. The first four commandments, remember the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In that I hear Deuteronomy 6, 4. And then he gives three commands of how we are to, what? Have God, a whole God, and preeminence. The first, therefore, four. The, The first one, have no other gods. And remember, no images. You remember this? Okay. The first four or the outworking or the equivalent rather of Deuteronomy six five. Then the last six are the equivalent of Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Honor your Yamam and them. don't steal, don't kill. You remember that? The first four are God related, then the next six are people related. In us, what does this love of God look like? Just quickly, it looks like Galatians 5 22 and 23. 20, I forgot the version. 22 to 25, I think it is, isn't it? How do you like that? There goes my mind. No, 22, 23. That's what the love of God looks like in our life. This is how you can be, you know, testing, if you would, yourself. How does that work? How does that work? Well, first of all, you must be born by the love of God into the love of God. Right, Rosa? You must become a child of the love of God. Then how, what's happening? Now the Holy Spirit in us is not improving or increasing our kind of love. He is replacing our kind of love with God's kind of love, Debbie. He is doing that by us being transformed. So what is revelation? Romans twelve two say, but be you transform. Help me, somebody. What does Romans two say? I have no idea. Twelve two say, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renew that you may prove what this will of God is. How do we? How is the love of God being manifested in us? It is being manifested in us as the Holy Spirit takes the issues and the categories and the activities, etc., of our kind of natural fallen, self centered, self oriented, self grasping, self getting love, and is transforming it, changing it, replacing it with God's kind of love. And that should be happening in all of us gradually, it is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ, Romans eight twenty nine. That's what's happening. God is not improving us. He's not in the improving business. He's in the resurrection business. Our old love is being put to death in the cross of Christ applied by the Spirit. And God's kind of love is being resurrected in us by the same Spirit who has put us to death in Christ Christ. Every temptation to sin is a battle for the preeminence of the rule of God's kind of love in us. Every call to obedience is a call to love God with his love and to love one another with his love so that he is glorified in the activity of his love in us toward him and in us toward one another. Amen? See you next week.